Chapter Thirteen of Pioneer Work in the Alps of New Zealand by Arthur Paul Harper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Timmerman Vaughan. Chapter Thirteen, Karangarua River continued. Bad weather. Twain Gorge. A Maori arrives. Douglas returns. Karangarua Gorge. Lame Duck Camp. Douglas again ill. Head of the river. A lonely Christmas. Allowing the river another day to reach its proper level, I left camp on the 21st, and, fording just opposite, went up the north bank of the Twain to see if a route was practicable on that side. These rivers are glacier streams, and very cold indeed to ford. After a long crossing, like the one opposite camp, which was about eighty yards of actual wading, the cold made one's legs sting painfully. Though we had to ford creeks or river four days in a week during the work in the lower part of the valley, we never really got used to it, and always found the stinging cold very disagreeable for a few minutes. The weather, at this period of our work, was so bad that it would be monotonous to record my daily experiences. The 20th and 24th were wet days, but very cold, so the river did not rise enough to prevent a certain amount of work. On the 21st and 23rd, I made trips into the Twain Gorge, trying first a high-level and then a low-level route along the north bank, and in each case was stopped by a bluff or terrace of smooth ice-worn rock, some two hundred feet high, facing up the valley and running obliquely from the top of the range down to the water's edge. A party of three could no doubt find a route through the gorge with help of a rope, but for one man it proved too difficult to make it practicable. About seven miles along the Karangarua range from Mount Sefton is Mount Glorious, which sends off a spur in a southwesterly direction for about four miles. The spur divides the Twain Gorge from the valley of Regina Creek, and is the only offshoot worth mentioning from the Karangarua Range on either side. The slopes of the range and the spur are smooth, and lie at an angle of thirty-five degrees, showing here and there large patches of ice-worn rock and high bluffs. The soil all along this slope is very thin, and has in many places slipped away, leaving the bare rock. On the north bank of the Twain Gorge, the vegetation consisting of large trees, has only a foot or two of soil in which to grow. In several places in the bush there are large bare faces of rock, and the trees seem to have formed a network of roots to help one another to stand. The high-level route took me a mile into the gorge at a height of seventeen hundred feet above the water, and the lower one I could only follow a very short distance, as the above-mentioned rocky terraces, which ran down obliquely to the course of the river, kept forcing me up before a way over them could be found. The view of the gorge, from the furthest point I reached, was very imposing. The opposite side, which had proved too much for us before my companion left me, showed a bare face of perpendicular grey rock of hundreds, nay thousands, of feet, with a ledge or shelf here and there, on which some trees found a precarious foothold. Several springs of water were to be seen, shooting out from the rock face for a foot or two, and then dropping downwards, would be lost in space, only reaching the bottom as spray. During the second attempt, I was fortunate enough to witness the effect of a thunderstorm while in the gorge, an experience I should have been very sorry to miss. The echo and re-echo of the thunder from those vast precipices, combined with the mists swirling across their faces, can never be forgotten, and the effect was intensified and appeared far grander, because I was alone. How feeble one's pen feels when attempting to describe such wondrous scenery as this. The Twain Gorge, with its awful grandeur, 
Regina Creek, with its beauty of a quieter sort, and the Karangarua Gorge, with its fantastic surroundings, require a form of word-painting entirely beyond my powers. Again, the charm of a quiet evening after a storm, in the midst of such wet and boisterous weather as we had at Bark Camp, has to be experienced before it can be realized. When sitting out on the riverbed, below the camp, listening to the murmur of the river, the weird cry of the cacas flying across the valley, the clear note of the tui, and more familiar sound of the English blackbird, which has found its way into these solitudes, and when looking at the picture of blue ice-water flowing round a dark bush-covered island, backed up by a gloomy gorge, through which the ice-capped summits of the higher mountains could be seen, lighted up with a warm glow by the last rays of the sun, I used to feel that in spite of my loneliness I was to be envied. The absolute peace and restfulness of such an evening is better appreciated after a hard day of climbing and rough work, alone, forcing one's way into an unknown gorge, or after a long spell of stormy weather, such as there had been lately, when the very elements seemed determined to hinder one's attempt to push ahead. While smoking in quiet contentment, and looking at the magnificent surroundings, one would mentally picture other similar evenings, by no means uncommon, in other localities, and wonder why one never got tired of such things. I suppose a true lover of nature never does tire. On the evening of the 26th, I was sitting in my ragged clothes over the fire, and having been unable to make those three lower notes sound on the flute, I decided to have some songs. While singing, as only a man can sing when he knows there is no one within miles of him, I was startled, in the middle of a verse, by seeing a yellow three-legged dog, and then a Maori, emerge from the darkness into the firelight. Both were evidently very much amused at the picture they had seen before I noticed them. This proved to be Ruera Timahi, or Bill, as he is more commonly called, and he told me that, quote, Charlie, Charlie Douglas, he say you fell go up find Harper, end quote. Having given him some cocoa, which he said, make very good tea, I asked him if he had any letters or papers for me, to which he replied, like all Maoris, oh yes, plenty time. However, I was not prepared to wait so long, having been without news for nearly six weeks, so I unrolled his load, and to my delight, found a great roll of papers, Graphic, Detroit Free Press, Strand Magazine, Weekly Times, Pall Budget, and Sketch, etc., also letters, and some fresh meat and onions. Douglas was coming up in a day or two, as he was better, and Bill was to go on with us in order to help him with his load, as he was determined to reach the head of the river. On the twenty-ninth Douglas arrived, not really fit for work, but as plucky as usual, and we had seven days of uninterrupted rain by way of showing him what it had been doing for the past month. However, the budget of papers gave us plenty to read, and the time did not hang heavily on our hands. At last, on the sixth of December, the weather cleared, having been exceptionally bad for six weeks, and raining on thirty-three days out of forty. From this date till the end of summer, the season was as good as we could wish, and fully made up for the previous long spell of rain. Since it was not possible to take our impedimenta through the Twain Gorge from Castle's Flat, it was quite evident that, in order to explore its headwaters, we should have to find a route into the valley by some saddle higher up the Karangarua Valley. In 1893, Messrs. Fife and Graham had crossed from the Muller Glacier into the Landsborough Valley, and finding that river too rough to follow, had gone up the McCarroll Glacier and dropped over a saddle onto a small flat, but had not gone any further, returning to the Muller Glacier again. From the photographs and their description, we knew 
that they had reached the head of the Twain Valley, but had not attempted to follow it down. We therefore decided to push on up the Karangarua River and get into the Landsborough Valley, and from thence into the Twain River, and coming down it, join on the traverse at or near the point I had reached from Bark Camp. Another route equally good would have been up Regina Creek, and over the spur into the Twain Valley, but there was no advantage in taking that line. Sending the Maori down to Scots with a mail, and to get a few odds and ends, I went up the river, and crossing Niblick and Tui Creeks, cleared a track through the gorge. It was a difficult and rough piece of work, taking three days to reach the more open valley above, a distance of three miles, of which only one and one-half mile required a track, and was responsible for the whole three days' work. The route, after mounting a steep broken slope, overgrown with tangled vegetation, had to be taken along above the walls of the gorge, some two hundred feet above the river, and below high overhanging cliffs of black rock. The two or three creeks which flowed into the river here dropped over the precipices in fine cascades, having pools between each fall, and wherever the water flowed the bare rock had been exposed, showing only two feet of soil on the surface. There will be terribly large landslips some day in this district, because the hillsides are very steep, and the soil has little hold. In the pools between the waterfalls we found some cockabullies, a small fish of three or four inches in length, unhealthy, black-looking beasts, with bullet heads. One pool had five or six in it, and was between two waterfalls of about fifty feet, so it was rather hard to understand how they had got there. Douglas tells me he has seen these fish climbing up the wet moss at the edge of a waterfall, evidently finding sufficient moisture from the spray. They are also to be seen on the move in very heavy rain. Some of these same fish have been found in the water at the bottom of a deep shaft on the Ross Goldfield. The river descends 1,100 feet in this gorge, over two large cataracts, which have been formed in the same manner as those in the other branches, by great boulders filling up the narrow rock-bound channel and preventing the water from cutting the valley floor down to a lower level. Above the upper cataract, the valley opens out and has, on one bank, the south, a terrace of hard nice rock, three hundred feet high, at the top of the cataract, which gradually becomes lower as the floor of the valley rises, until it ceases altogether, some two miles further up the river. The opposite bank has a series of rocky bluffs, with good shingle beaches and small grass flats between them, and affords good travelling. On December 11th, the Maori and I took a light camp up to a spot I had chosen a quarter of a mile above the gorge. On the 12th, I sent him back to Bark Camp to bring another load and help Douglas over the track, while I pushed on up the river to reconnoiter. The camp we were now in was rather an awkward place to be caught without stores in bad weather, for in order to return to our head camp, it was necessary to ford the river, which ran deep against the rocky side, and cross two large creeks. Had the river risen a foot, it would have been impossible to cross, and one's retreat would be cut off. We therefore called this camp the rat trap. About a mile and a half above here, the river has cut a most fantastic gorge through the rock. The sides are some forty feet high, and in places approach to within three feet of one another, while the water has worn a very tortuous channel for itself. The banks resemble two pieces of rock which have been roughly dovetailed and not placed quite into position. Between these walls the water is twenty feet deep in places, and very clear. On emerging from the gorge there is a small flat, 2,083 feet above sea level, which seemed a good place for the next camp, and was surrounded as usual with high rock peaks. 
from one of these a fine waterfall theodore falls descended in four leaps over rocky precipices from a height of seventeen hundred feet this flat i named lame duck flat because jack the maori's dog pursued a duck which had young ones and nearly killed himself by going over a waterfall into the gorge when a pair of ducks have a brood and danger threatens the female goes away with the young ones and the drake draws the pursuer after him in the opposite direction by pretending to have a broken wing most dogs know that it is only pretense and make no attempt to follow but poor jack gave chase and for nearly half an hour was now swimming and now running on his three legs on the river bed while the drake kept just five yards ahead of him at last the bird drew him towards the gorge and before i could prevent it jack was over a waterfall between rocky walls however i believe that dog had nine lives for he reappeared lower down grinning as usual but looking very foolish next day i went down through the big gorge to bark camp and on the following morning the fourteenth we all returned up to the rat trap camp bill and i with heavy loads on the fifteenth we moved camp again to lame duck flat and while the maori made two or three trips down to bark camp for stores i went on up the river alone with a fly leaving douglas at lame duck camp with the batwing passing through another troublesome but beautiful rocky gorge i put up my shelter a mile and a quarter further up the river at the point where a large tributary which i named troit river joins the main stream this drains mount fetz eight thousand and ninety two feet and flows through an imposing gorge between towering mountains half a mile after the troit stream joins the river it flows through a short gorge of twenty chains at the lower end the rock sides form a great arch over the water which is twenty yards wide at this place and approach to within six feet of one another at a height of forty feet from the river an almost complete arch and sixty yards above this the two sides actually touch from below the water to fifteen feet above the river here goes down in a whirlpool on the upper side and bursts up with a furious seething and bubbling on the lower side evidently having only a narrow passage below the water line this must be a wonderful sight in a flood starting from troit river camp early on the morning of the eighteenth of december i pushed on through some bad travelling to the head of the river and climbing two thousand eight hundred feet reached the saddle five thousand six hundred and forty one feet leading into the mccarro glacier about noon a short climb down a snow-filled couloir of three hundred feet brought me on to the glacier about a mile above the terminal face having thus proved that a practical route could be found into the landsborough valley i decided to return at once down the river to see how douglas was getting on and by dint of some pretty fast going reached lame duck camp at dark after a day of fifteen hours here i found poor douglas quite unable to attempt further work and reluctantly making up his mind to return to scott's it was very hard luck because he had explored or shared in the exploration of every river on the west coast from the wataroa to the sounds and had set his heart on reaching the head of this the last unexplored valley however he showed his usual pluck by swallowing his disappointment without grumbling and the next morning began the return valley sending the maori down to scott's two days journey douglas and i made a long day and were able to reach bark camp at dark as we had nothing to carry douglas was to wait here till scott sent up some men and a horse to the futa in order to help him down for he was really not able to walk much having had to be carried over the creeks and river by me the day before leaving him therefore in good quarters with instructions to the maori to bring up a load after me 
I returned to Lame Duck Camp with a load of four days' stores, to leave at the Rat Trap for use on our return after finishing the Twain and Landsborough Valleys. Having to fix a station on the north side of the valley, the next morning I went down to Coleridge Creek, a large tributary flowing into the river just below the Dovetail Gorge, and draining a small patch of ice on the top of the range. The hillside here is bare rock for some 2,500 feet above the river, varying from 32 to 36 degrees, off which the whole surface of soil and scrub has slipped. The slope was too steep and smooth to attempt in my boots, so I dispensed with them and found that bare feet made the walking quite easy, though the slope was rather steep in places. On reaching 1,300 feet above the river, I sat down to take bearings and was greatly amused at poor Jack, who had accompanied me. He was looking at me in a very reproachful manner and trying his best to sit down, first with his head uphill and then down, but of course a slope at such an angle is not an easy seat for a quadruped, though he could walk up it well enough. However, five hundred feet higher there was a small tarn, ten yards in diameter, on a shelf in the rock, and here he was happy, while I was making further observations. Going down again was rather difficult, but beyond one approach to an involuntary glissade of some nine hundred feet, the descent was uneventful. Leaving two pounds of oatmeal, a tin of hare soup, and one of jam, under a stone at the camp, for use on our return, I made my way to Troit River Camp, taking all the things up in one load. While passing through some bad boulders, which at two places completely bridged the river, I nearly came to grief by trying to get through a hole formed by two of these monsters, lying against one another on the top of a third stone. The opening roughly resembled a single oriel window, about four feet from the ground, and narrow. Therefore, I put one leg through, and lifting my arms over my head got my shoulders through, but the load proved too large and became firmly jammed. Owing to the position of my arms, I was unable to get back, or to reach the sheath-knife in my belt to cut the shoulder-straps, and I could not use my legs, for they were both off the ground. After some three or four minutes of pulling and straining, which seemed more like an hour, I began to fear that I should never get out, but one more desperate effort was successful, and I extricated myself with numb arms, and pretty well exhausted by the brief struggle. There is no excuse for this mishap. It was gross carelessness on my part to risk the chance of sticking in a place like this, when alone. The proper plan, and the one which I generally adopted, was to get through the opening first, and pull the load after me, instead of endeavouring to pass with a load strapped on my back. Like all other dangers, it was a case of familiarity breeds contempt. From Troit River Camp I tried to follow the Troit stream down through the gorge, but without success, as it was rock-walled with cliffs of three hundred and four hundred feet in height, and full of waterfalls. To go up this branch would require a climb through the scrub, over the spur forming one side of the gorge. I therefore made a climb on the north bank of the Karangarua, and was able to overlook and make all necessary observations for mapping the Troit Basin. Mount Fetz, 8,092 feet, with a small hanging glacier, lies at the head of this stream, and shows a magnificent rock face of some 4,800 feet, cut up in ridges, buttresses, and couloirs. To the right, about two miles up from the junction, a low saddle shows where Jacob's, Makawiho, River, takes its rise, which flows behind Mount McGloin, and reaches the sea eight miles south of the Karangarua. On Christmas Eve, I took half my impedimenta up to a small flat, 2,803 feet, under the saddle at the head of the river, a journey of a mile and a half, taking a good three hours, and leaving them in shelter returned to camp that evening, where I had some observations to make. Not particularly relishing the idea of spending Christmas under a sixty-pound load, and over bad travelling, 
I decided not to begin festivities until my shelter was rigged up on Christmas Flat. Leaving Troit River, therefore, at 5 a.m., I reached that flat at 8 o'clock, and had the camp pitched two hours later, and having brought up a small piece of suet and a few raisins, on purpose for Christmas, I made a pudding and had it boiling by noon. When everything was snug, I shook hands with myself, wished myself a Merry Christmas, and offered my congratulations on reaching the head of the river. I then produced the flute, and, sitting on a stone near the fire, so that I could watch the pudding, struck up a Christmas tune or two, but, as the three lower notes were still silent, the only part of the tune that my audience could hear was the part that happened to wander amongst the upper three notes. My audience, which, by the way, consisted of two wekas, I killed, after the concert was over, and prepared them for my evening meal. It has since been insinuated, by kind friends, that the audience probably died from the effect of the performance. The best mode of roasting a weka is to make an opening at the back of his neck, and clean him, then get a stone, about an inch in diameter, and having made it red-hot, put it inside the bird, and, passing a stick through his body, stand him in front of the fire to roast. When the bird is cooked, in about half an hour, we plant the stick in the ground and proceed to carve slices off, as it stands up in front of us. My Christmas dinner consisted of five courses, namely, weka's liver and heart on toast, roast weka, one onion, deviled weka's leg, plum duff, three dry figs, and I ventured to say that, though I had no brandy for the pudding, and the suet was too old and made it taste tallowy, I spent as happy a Christmas as most people. But I confess that a man must have succeeded in reaching the head of his river, after some pretty rough work, before he can really appreciate a duff made of bad suet. After a short smoking concert in the evening, I hung the remains of my socks on a branch over my head, and turned in. But I suppose there were too many holes in them, for in the morning the contents panned out, very poorly, a little hoar-frost only. It must be admitted that a man must be rather a maniac before he can enjoy these sorts of discomforts. Bill, one day after he had rejoined me, put on my cap by mistake, and found it too large, so he said, You fell got peri-tick head. Possibly he was right, and that may account for my enjoying this solitary Christmas. Just after I had hung up my socks and turned in, I heard a shout down the flat, and on going out found that the Maori had arrived, having slept at lame duck camp the previous night. We therefore put up a shelter for him, by the light of the fire, near my own quarters, and made another brew of tea, before finally turning into our blankets. He had a good load of stores, and a grand budget of papers and letters for me, which I spent the next day in reading, for, owing to my custom of going about barefooted, when anywhere near camp, I had burned my instep, and was unable to put on a boot, or do any work. A most tantalizing invitation was amongst the letters from Mannering, who, writing in November, stated that a large party were to be at the Hermitage for Christmas, and were anxious for me to find some Passover and join them. This would probably be easy to do, had my companion been any good on hills, but he proved to be of little use, so I dared not attempt a high pass with him, and had to give up the idea. The newspapers contained news of the Tsar's death by cable and were more than six weeks old when they reached me. The Maori made a first-rate companion, and his English was amusing. It was rather like Chinese pidgin English. He always said, I me, for I, and you fell, for you. He could not pronounce the letter R, but always substituted L, and many other little peculiarities. Forgetting birds, he was capital, and, if any were near, he and his dog Jack always found them. The only drawback was that he was painfully slow, and no good on hills or rocks 
so I had always to leave him in her about camp, and do the high work alone, sometimes a risky performance. One thing which interested me greatly when he arrived was that he said, "'You fell son of white man?' I asked him what white man he meant. "'Oh, de white man long time ago he come down with Terapuhi. By this, of course, I knew he was referring to my father, who was the first white man to cross from the east coast to the west. In 1857, he went over at the head of the Hurunui River with a few Maoris and explored the coast down to the Haast River, as it is now called. But having written very little about it, the expedition had been practically forgotten. Bill, however, told me he was a little boy and that his father took him up to Okarito to see the white man and the old chief now living at Jacob's River, told him, when he was coming up to join me, that I had the same name, and might be the son of the white man. On the 27th, I sent the Maori up to a rock on the saddle, to leave a load of stores under it, and leaving camp at 4.30 a.m. myself, I made an ascent of Mount Howitt, and another peak, Cairn 4, between the Karangarua and Twain rivers. By 6 a.m. I had topped the range, some 3,000 feet above camp, and after spending an hour or more observing and photographing, I went along the arete between the McCarrow Glacier and Twain River to the latter point, 7,400 feet above sea level. The climb was uninteresting from a gymnastic point of view, but being alone, I had to be careful of the large snow cornice on the arete and of some rather steep ice. Also, on the return in the usual fog about noon, it was difficult to see my way down the steep and rotten rocks for a short distance. But topographically, the view was grand. The Twain Valley could be seen over 3,500 feet below, walled in on the left by immense cliffs, which extended from the source down to the gorge by Castle's Flat. Across the valley, the Karangarua Range, with Mount Sefton at its head, could be followed down to the junction of the Copeland River. On it is the large ice field of the Douglas Glacier coming off Mount Sefton, and then a high offshoot, which I named Pioneer Peak, divides the Douglas from the neve of another fine primary glacier, the snout of which was seen sweeping down a tributary valley into the Twain. This, which I christened the Horace Walker, with some smaller glaciers, which I named Wilkes, Pilkington, Morse, Fitzgerald, and Fife, drains into the Twain River, and accounted for the volume of water seen at Castle's Flat. To the south, the Landsborough Valley could be traced from the McCarrow for some thirty miles, and peak after peak of the dividing range towered up, like the teeth of a huge saw, carrying a little snow and ice, but forming some fine rocky summits. The 28th we spent on the saddle, completing the observations for the Karangarua Valley, and also bringing stores to place under shelter of a rock up there, in order that on our return from the Landsborough to the Twain, we should replenish our supplies as we passed up the McCarrow Glacier under the saddle, thus avoiding a descent to Christmas Flat. The ascent to the saddle was an easy one, up an open rough creek for 1,200 feet, and then 1,000 feet or so over open grass slopes covered with large erratic boulders. The creek ran at the foot of a huge precipice of ice-worn rock, the top of which was rather higher than the actual saddle. Beginning at nothing just above the saddle, this cliff became higher as the ground sloped down to the flat, until it was 1,500 feet high. A waterfall, the sisters, came over this in one leap of 800 feet, halfway up the slope to the saddle, and form one of the sources of the Karangarua. Four other creeks flowed down in various directions, and joined on Christmas Flat, draining small snowfields on the hilltops. Very stunted and thick mountain vegetation grows for 600 feet on the lower slopes of the hills, and in places on the flat itself the scrub was fairly thick, 
and grew to a height of ten or fifteen feet. The greater part was, however, open grass and young scrub, which we burnt. We also fired one or two spurs. At the head of a valley, if the weather was dry enough, we generally fired the scrub, but rarely got a good burn. It never grows again when burnt, and thus, in the future, a few open spaces may delight the heart of any other maniac who tempts providence by following in our footsteps. End of chapter 13